Hey everyone, welcome to episode two of Strong Reception with Eli James. It's September 2020. I'm in my studio, a.k.a. my closet in Brooklyn, in what is now month seven of New York's coronavirus marathon. Um, I hope that everyone out there is safe and well and finding ways to stay sane and connected. So I'm super excited today because this episode of Strong Reception is the first in a series I'm doing about music called Did You Know That Was a Cover? In this series, we're going to delve into the history of certain songs that you may have thought were first recorded by someone, but turns out the first person to do it was someone else. And turns out that first version is cool and has a really cool, unexpected story behind it. I love this topic because one of the greatest thrills and most lasting pleasures I get out of it is I get to discover so much great music that's new to me. So first, let me ask you this. Did you grow up with this song? Did you grow up with this one? Either way, I'm going to guess that you did not grow up with or have any close association with this one. Like many of you, I had no idea this version of the song was the mostly unknown original release. That was until earlier this year when I read an article in the Washington Post by arts reporter Jeff Edgers, which told the fascinating and dark true story of its very talented originator, the voice you hear there, Lori Lieberman. I was lucky enough to get an interview with Lori Lieberman to talk about what happened in her career and with that song, And it's truly a a fascinating and important story, I think. So take a listen. I hope you enjoy. My guest today is the tremendously gifted singer and songwriter and guitarist Lori Lieberman, who between 1972 and 1976 released five albums for Capitol Records before taking a hiatus from the music industry. And then she came roaring back in the mid-90s, writing and recording album after album of beautifully poetic, lush, original songs sung in her absolutely entrancing voice. Yet her biggest claim to fame still isn't famous enough, in my opinion, so I wanted to find a way to let more people know about it. As a young singer-songwriter at 20 years of age, Lori Lieberman was the first artist to record and release Killing Me Softly with his song. It's the lead track on her self-titled debut album, which came out in 1972. The song, which became a Grammy-winning hit for Roberta Flack the following year, would probably not have been written had Laurie not decided to jot down some lines of poetry on a cocktail napkin while sitting in the audience at a little club called The Troubadour in Los Angeles in 1971. She wrote that napkin poem while watching an early performance by a young singer-songwriter named Don McLean. This is a fact that her former managers slash songwriters tried vehemently to disavow decades later in their effort to suppress Lori's role in the writing of that song. So today, we're going to be telling that story and many more stories from the life of an unsung legend, 
Lori Lieberman. Lori, thanks so much for being on today with me. Thank you so much for having me. It's my great pleasure. So for those who don't know the story and you know, there are a lot who don't know. What was your role in the writing and recording of the original release of Killing Me Softly with his song? Well, um, back when I was like 20 years old, um, I had a deal with um, a team of management, um, Norman Gimbel and Charles Fox, and they Mm -hmm. signed me to a a contract that was a pretty all-encompassing contract that involved uh, management uh, production. They would write most of the songs, um, publish them, and produce me. And mm-hmm. so my deal was with them, and 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 uh, then Capitol Records um, picked us picked us to do uh, the first album. And we had one more song on this first album um, that we needed. And at that time. Um, uh, my dear friend Michelle Willens, who's a New York-based writer. Yeah, did you know who she is? You know? Well, I, I looked up her name when I when I uh, was reading the story in the Post, and oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was like, oh, she's she's kind of like a big deal writer. <laughs> she is, and she's a big deal friend. And so back then, um, uh, she asked me if I wanted to go to the Troubadour to you know hear a singer that I hadn't heard of, Don McLean, mm-hmm. and um, I reluctantly went and. Um, you know, sitting there, I was going through kind of a hard time, at, which wasn't unusual for me. I, it was a my my life had always been pretty dramatic, and it continued on certainly during that time and on pretty much through my twenties. But at that on that night, I sat in the back of the club with my friend Michelle and Don McLean, saying. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of songs. And I thought he was great. He, he appeared solo, just him and his guitar. And then he sang a song, um, Empty Chairs. And mm-hmm. I related to that song so much. Um, uh, it, I, I, I really felt that, um, he was singing just to me. Uh, and I, yeah. I, I felt like the audience had sort of disappeared and, and I was alone in this club with, with, with just him singing to me. I was so mesmerized and so um, uh, taken with it that I, I actually did feel, I, I remember, I, I just felt so embarrassed. I felt really exposed, like the audience was looking at me and, you know, could see, you know, how I was feeling. And mm. so when when he stopped um, uh, performing and he, he got off the stage, I sat there and wrote down some notes and some, uh, it turned out to be a poem on, on a napkin that they had on the table there. And, um, you know, very much about that experience, about going to hear a singer I hadn't heard of, feeling like he was singing about me in my life mm. and um, feeling embarrassed. I, I did feel, and, and, and I did write that he had, you know, read my, my diary and, um, mm. and, and that he was, you know, looking, you know, right through me. And when I got home, I um, called Norman Gimbel again, my, my manager, who was a very great songwriter, lyricist in his own right. He had written everything from, um, I love him. I love him. And where he goes, mm. he wrote that. <laughs> and he wrote all the songs from the uh, movie, the umbrellas of Cherbourg. He wrote girl from me. Oh. Emma. 
You know, he, he I wrote didn't all, know that about yeah. the umbrellas of Sherbrooke. Yep. I will wait. Uh, if it takes forever, I will wait for you. He wrote that. It seemed like he wrote, you know, every elevator song you, know, <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine. And, and, um, and all, of, uh, all of the Brazilian songs. by Right. Jean. He wrote the so English. So he wrote the English lyrics for yeah. uh, the girl from Ipanema. Yeah. Ipanema and Ipanema. Wrote, um, yeah. And, um, and yeah, a lot of the other the other ones too. Uh, in my solitude, ba 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 ba. He wrote that. Anyway, okay. so I come home and I, Norman Gimbel and I had begun a personal relationship, which had was mm. really fraught with a lot of ups and downs. It was and and but um, we were sort of having our affair in secret. And mm-hmm. um, I called him and I told him that about this experience, he at that time already had um, a book of titles that he had been always referring to um, for possible song ideas. And he, he listened to my poem and to my experience. And and he said, you know, this might go really well with this title actually, which he'd gotten from a book. And, and this title that he had was killing me softly with his blues. And so over the next uh, few days, uh, we talked on the phone about where I was sitting and what I was feeling and thinking. And, and we worked on this lyric together to make sure that it was just exactly, um, you know, the right, you know, truthful and, and, and all of that. So um, then Charles Fox, who was my other manager, wrote the music to this lyric and um, changed it just a little bit for my voice. The the original was killing me softly with his song, killing me softly went up, but my, my range couldn't handle it. So it, it got changed. And also during the making of that song, uh, during the writing of that song, the three of us sat there and he, um, they wanted to actually have killing me softly um, a bookended um, they, they wanted actually Killing Me Softly to bookend another song in the middle so that when it talks about hearing a singer and, and strumming my pain, then there would be the song that he was playing. And the song that they suggested was a song called Back to Before, which is from my first album. So at that time, Richard Harris actually had a big hit with a song by Jimmy Webb called MacArthur Park. And that was a song that had a whole lot of um, different influences within one song. And it basically was like two or three songs within one. And Mm -hmm. they wanted to have Killing Me Softly be in that same style. But I just really felt like the song was way stronger without it and, um, and more cohesive. And uh, we talked about it. And so uh, I, I talked them. You into, saved it. You yeah, saved the song. I, I saved it, <laughs> and uh, that's that's what I had to do with the writing, Eli. That's mm-hmm. that's you know the or I should say the creating of of the song that it was my idea and it was my poem and yeah and we had a, a lot of back and forth. And it sounds like um, you and Norman before before the music was written with with Charles Fox, you and Norman had gone through the lyrics to see if it felt right. Oh yeah. 
Definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. To see if it was, you know, exactly as it had happened. And um, I do think that the lyric is exactly as it happened. I heard he sang mm-hmm. a good song. I heard he had a style. So I went to right. see him to listen for a while. <laughs> I was looking at the lyrics for Empty Chairs. Oh, yeah. And, I, and, the, and it says, empty rooms that echo as I climb the stairs right. and empty clothes that drape and fall on empty chairs. Yeah. And I wonder if you know that I never understood that although you said you'd go until you did, I never thought you would, That's which right. to me is such a universally painful description of a, a breakup or a failing yeah. relationship. It, it, it's true. It was. And it just hit me at that time. You know, I, I recently recorded that song and I've come to relate to it on a whole different level, but um, mm-hmm. it still is a lovely, lovely piece, I think. Mm-hmm. And was it, were you thinking about your relationship with Norman Gimbel? Oh, for sure. At the time? For sure. You know, and I was, uh, as I said earlier, you know, I was incredibly dramatic and, um, and it was a really, um, a a really tumultuous relationship. And it was also my first relationship. So I didn't have much experience with that. (laughs) Sure. I know, uh, you, um, grew up sort of in two places, right? It was I Los did. Angeles and also Geneva. Yeah. Switzerland. Yeah, I did. Um, I was born in LA um, and lived here until I was about eight years old. And mm-hmm. my father actually invented a certain kind of paint that was for the exterior of houses that could be shot from a gun. And oh, he talked Whoa. about <laughs> you could so you could paint a house with a gun. Is that you know, correct? You know, I've said it so many times that I've sort of stopped realizing right. how bad that sounds. But yeah, like a spray gun, you know. I see. <laughs> kind of like an ass like a like a stucco. It was like a stucco. I see. So <laughs> it's like an automatic weapon that that shoots finely textured uh, material at a house. What? Um, and would this be used for, for, was this used for residential? Or it was, it okay. was. And, you know, my dad was a real salesman and hmm. a very kind of a good looking young guy. He did this when he was 21 years old wow. and he told people that it would last for 15 years. So he wanted to make this paint international. His name is, mm-hmm. his name was Ken and the, and the business um, name was Kenatex. And, okay. and so he moved us to Geneva, Switzerland from LA. Um, we were going to just stay for a year and we wound up, I, I wound up really pretty much spending the rest of my school days there until I graduated and went to college. And there were a couple of times, actually, I should say more than once in the middle of the school year, um, we would come back to Los Angeles for about three months, never to the same school and never to the same house. It was really hmm. rough actually. Cause I yeah. went to 13 different schools growing up 13. Wow. I know. And, wow. and for me, it was always me standing in front of a classroom and uh, the teacher saying, you know, class, this is Lori Lieberman and she's going to hmm. be, you know, your, your new student for a while. And, my life was divided into, um, you know, the Swiss experience and then the LA experience so that I, I literally had two different lives. I would come to LA now, let's say 12 or 13 years old. And my cousin who lived in Los Angeles 
uh, Leslie would meet me at the airport with Mm -hmm. the latest clothes and in the bathroom, show me the latest dances and off we'd go. I'd have this new sort of persona and then I'd go back. Dancing in the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) The living room was off limits. <laughs> no, it's okay. No, hey, I'm, I'm just sorry. Bed, bedroom, is, living room is what no, I think the of. Bathroom, the bathroom of the airport. Oh, the I see. Of the air- oh, <laughs> the bathroom of the airport. Okay, all right. My so bad. she would meet me at uh, the airport. We would go so, into the bathroom with new clothes that she would pick out. From, okay, you know the latest store and the latest styles, and show me the latest dances. And out of the bathroom, I would go. You know, <laughs> so she was like, "Hey, before we hit the town, I got to show you what the dances are." Totally. I don't want you to embarrass me out there. <laughs> it's tough. And I did feel that way. I was like, you know, show me what to do, Leslie. Just show me what to do, who to yes. be. Wow. <laughs> and then I would, you know, sort of go back to Geneva and I'd go hmm. back into my pleated skirt and my, you know, hmm. uh, tie up shoes and socks, my hair back in a ponytail and be this other person. So it was really right. no wonder I was a mess. <laughs> yeah, that sounds hard. That's, those, it was that sounds hard. really hard. It really um, was. Is that what you were referring to when you said there was just a lot of drama in your life? Yeah, there was so there was there, that was very dramatic because at mm. any point my my parents would say um, we're leaving. You know, and mm. so, you know, don't make too many uh, solid relationships because they're going to end in three months. And, um, you know, it, it was hard. Definitely. I as a mother now of my own kids, I, I don't think I'd be doing that to them. Yeah, I, I, I can't imagine. Um, yeah. You talk about um, this sort of relationship you had with Norman Gimbel that sort of uh, began after you had signed this management slash songwriting contract with with him yeah and um you mentioned in another interview that it seemed like all the ingredients were there for a sort of manipulation of a vulnerable young woman mm. who was wanting to become a performing artist and um you know he was much older than you obviously he was 44 i believe yeah or 19 or 20 yeah and um he was already married mm-hmm. and um you said that you know you were sort of sharing your life and your diaries and your poetry with him. And, uh, at a time when you didn't really have a voice, you said yeah. you felt like you didn't have a voice. What did you that's, mean by that? That's really true. I mean, I actually wound up writing a song called cup of girl, mm-hmm. uh, that talks about that. You know, I, I was so grateful that, um, that he saw something in me as a singer, as, um, you know, someone he would want to manage and then so incredibly flattered that this person who had had such um, success um, Mm. uh, would even, you know, look at me uh, in that way. So I was completely overwhelmed and and I really, my identity was not strong at all as I, you know, I can imagine, you know, with a young girl just going back and forth like this. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it happened so fast. I came out of a two-year college and came out to LA. And within a few months, really, I was signed to Capitol Records and to them. So this all happened, you know, really, really quickly. Um, so they they uh, they um, set up an audition for you or they heard you sing somewhere or how did that happen? I actually went to um, 
I was still seeing it, even though I was 19, I, I hadn't found a, a doctor. And so I was still seeing my pediatrician for an annual checkup. And he said, okay. so you want to be a singer? I said, yes, I do. And he said, well, my neighbor actually is um, a guy named Norman Gimbel. And, uh, you know, maybe he can help you. And so mm-hmm. I called him and I went over and um, and sang for him. And I, I sang my little repertoire of songs, which was... Uh, Carol King's "You've Got a Friend," mm-hmm. <laughs> Donovan's "Catch the Wind." Oh, I um, love that song. <laughs> Elton John's uh, "Your Song," and okay. "Leave It on a Jet Plane." <laughs> oh, these are those, all great that songs. Was, <laughs> that was my little repertoire, and he really thought I was good. I was pretty surprised, but he he did. And and you were playing, accompanying yourself a guitar, right? Yeah, I was accompanying okay. myself on my guitar. I I didn't even drive, so my mother was driving around the block for okay. the hour that I that I spent with him, and uh, and. Then he wanted to introduce me to his associate partner, Charles Fox. And I went over there a few days later and uh, Norman drove me. And at first, Charlie did not particularly like or or respond to my voice. It was like, Mm. it was okay. But then he said, you know, before you leave, and I could tell he wasn't very impressed. And he said, before you leave, um, let's just put it down on tape. And he got his reel to reel in a little studio in his house. Okay. And I sang, you know, and you know, jet plane, your song, <laughs> you got a friend, mm-hmm. catch the wind, and there was something. So he you did heard. them again, you, yeah. But okay. now this time recorded. But there was something that he heard on tape that he didn't hear live. It was more of an, hmm. a nuance, and he realized that um, that that my voice was something that he really liked to work with. And so over the next three months, we kind of woodshedded and um, worked on a few songs that they had written. And and then we got to deal with Capitol Records. Mm-hmm. Wow. And yeah, I mean, uh, your your voice is so, um, I've been listening to to a lot of your music and your mm-hmm. your voice is so expressive, so beautiful. Oh, uh, you, thank you the, so the, much for saying yeah, that. Yeah, no, I was, I you know, I had never listened to you before. I had um, decided to look up, wait, who was it who sang Killing Me Softly with a song? <laughs> Just the name wasn't, and I didn't know there was someone who sang it before Roberta Flack did. I didn't know that. Oh my gosh. And then uh, come to find out, you know, I read the article in the, in the Washington Post about it. And then I was like, well, I gotta, I gotta get all of her music. And I couldn't, um, all of your early Capitol albums are not, don't seem to be available on any music streaming sites. No, they're not. They, they were never released on CD and they're in a vault somewhere in Capitol, uh, Capitol Records vault. My, oh, no. At some so point, I'll try to get them. I know. They're not even on CD? That's, nope, they're uh, not. Isn't that weird? There's uh, five of them, actually, five yeah. releases. Yeah. Um, wow, that's crazy to me. So I, I, I found, you know, I had to go on YouTube and listen to your, mm. you know, th- they didn't even have the whole album, your your first uh, Laurie Lieberman debut album. Um but I listened to "Killing Me Softly" that way, and I and I don't like listening to people's music that way because they don't get any royalties or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, so I, I I am like one of those nerds who's like, no, nah, you gotta pay for artists' work, <laughs> oh, no. even though I realize that you know Apple Music or Spotify is hardly paying, but at least it's something. Oh, um, but anyway, you had a deal with with. Um, the two, those two guys that they were not just managing you, but they had a deal to write all of 
all of your songs or um, what, what, what was deal, it on paper? Well, the deal was that they would write most of the songs. I did do some writing and I did mm-hmm. some writing with them. Um, but mostly yeah. it was um, them telling me, you know, kind of what to say and, and basically what to sing. Mm. And when I referred to a singer that had no voice, I think I was just such a, a, a vessel for, for them recently. Mm. I've, I've read a, an article that they had um, interviewed. They, there was an interview with them and they said, you know, you've got to find a singer who, you know, can be a vessel for your songs. And and I realized that that's really what I was. I was a vehicle for them. And um, I, you know, I, I just, um, and I, I, I cared about them tremendously. And, and so after our fourth album, actually, uh, the head of Capitol wanted me to, uh, change, um, and, and, and go with, uh, different producers that they could still write songs for me, but they weren't happy with the production, but I, okay. I insisted that, no, I, I wanted to stay with them and, hmm. and we were out of a deal. Like so they the were producing week. your records as well? Yeah, they were producing, okay. arranging, publishing, writing, managing. And, you know, I uh, through the Washington Post article I'm, I'm, and some experts who looked at my original contracts, they said these contracts would never, never hold up today. Mm. Yeah. And I had also, after four years uh, with them, um, I signed... An ex- I'm sorry, after three years with them, I signed a five-year extension to that contract okay. um, without uh, the benefit of, of a lawyer. And oh. it was in that time that I really, the relationship had fallen apart and I wanted to get out of the contracts, but they made it um, incredibly hard for me. And uh, they basically threatened to sue me and told me that I owed them a lot of money. And it was, they prevented me from recording for uh, five years. So it was rough. <sighs> That's terrible. I was reading, they, they said, hey, you owe us like $27,000 if yeah. you want to get out of this contract. Like, what? I know. Why? I know. And they already had made millions and millions with Killing Me Softly. Hmm. They said that I owed that money for touring costs, arranging costs, and, um, you know, yeah, over over a four year period. I mean, I didn't even have a dime. I had made no money whatsoever, yeah. so it was hard. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, it just seems kind of heartless that this is a man who you were having sort of, you know, what seemed like a, I'm sure to you, a serious relationship. Um, yeah, yeah, it was. You know, and and um, you know, it lasted uh, for three years. He actually left his wife, and mm. and and you know, I mean, there was. Uh, there, but then I, you know, I, I had to get a step away from it. It was just crazy making, you know, just one of those relationships that should have never been. Hmm. Yeah. And to, to, uh, press his advantage through not letting you out of this contract just seems sort of just really unconscionable. It was. And what's made it, you know, the, the furthering of the story that's made it so very difficult for me is, you know, I went on to, um, after five years, after, after the time went by where I was, I could uh, record again Mm -hmm. by that time, it was 1978. And I did one more album before I realized that the music business was just changing and the new company I was with had folded. Mm. Um, and, and I got out of the business for like 
15 years to have children and have a life for the very first right. time. But it was in 1997 uh, when, um, I think it was 1997, 1994, I believe, when the Fugees came out with Killing Me Softly. Uh, 96. Actually. 96. Thanks, Eli. So okay. in, in 1996, when the Fugees recorded Killing Me Softly, it was only then that uh, Gimbal and Fox, my management team, mm -hmm. former management team, uh, decided to um, change the story and right. claim that actually, no, 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 that's an urban myth. Lori had nothing to do with the writing of this song. and um, what Which really is crazy happened... because in the early days, they were putting the story, the truth out there. They were saying, yeah, you know, Lori came to us with, with with this concept. Yeah, right? that's right. They did. And they, and, and they, you know, as I said, you know, not only was I singing their songs, but they absolutely wrote what I was to say in between the songs. So mm. before killing me softly, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. It's, you know, um, this next song was written um, when I went to the Troubadour and I heard uh, Don McLean uh, performing and I felt like he was singing about me and my life. And I wrote a poem and I showed it to my producers and they, uh, you know, and, and, and that's how this song uh, was written. I mean, that's what I said in, uh, you know, clubs and print and TV shows and, yeah. you know, this went on, but now 1996, they're saying, no, no, no. We wrote the song. We played it for Lori. She, she loved it. And it reminded her of the time that she went to um, hear Don McLean. And so hmm. when they started putting out that story, um, it started to really have legs. And what bothered me so much was that everyone sort of looked at me as though I had been lying this whole time. And wow. they actually insinuated that um, I was lying and that Don McLean, who also had come out with a book called Killing Them Softly with My Songs, uh, <laughs> they said, and poor Don McLean, even he believes this myth. Uh. And that's what really, that's when I really wanted to speak up and set the record straight. That's what really got to me. And, and through the years, I got tremendously um, horrible and threatening letters from Gimbal and oh. uh, Don McLean did too. He actually was uh, threatened by Gimbal and his uh, lawyers that um, he should not talk about killing me softly and the influence right. that he had on the song. And right, because he had he had the story on his website, right? Yeah, yeah, about, and the book. About, yeah, mm -hmm. you know, okay. And, and uh, Don is a really tough guy, and you don't mess mm. with him. Okay. And so he really uh, shut them down. I saw a clip of him performing. Uh, I don't know when it was, maybe sometime in the last 10 years. Uh, maybe you can tell me when you were in the audience. Yeah. And uh, he said, hey, Lori, right? And, <laughs> yeah. and he told the story, um, you yeah. know, to a pretty big audience and I, about the origin of the song and, and your part in it. Was that, was that unexpected? Um, I didn't think he was going to do that, but I had uh, met his then wife and she was so nice. And she, you know, they invited me to this concert and I was sitting next to her in that clip. That's her uh, okay. sitting next to me with the, her glasses. Um, I was so uh, validated and so, um, you know, moved that he actually announced that it really meant a lot to me. And he's 
remained a major kind of champion for me. He's like, mm. come on, Laura, you got to get a lawyer. You got to do this. You got to do that. It's not fair. But, uh, you know, it's it's over now. <laughs> right. Yeah. You you have said uh, that you're not interested in, in going to court and trying to get um, a songwriting credit for killing something. It's impossible. And I know mm. that. And honestly, you know, Norman Gimbel has passed away and I... I'm happy to move on. I feel a tremendous sense of closure about it. I just wanted the truth to come out of right. my involvement with the song. And, and I was so pleased because when Alicia Keys performed it at the Grammys, um, the paper, uh, USA Today and, and whatever, now even on Wikipedia, it, it credits me for uh, my contribution in the song. So it, it really means a lot. That's great. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's great. I know. Yeah, and and apparently Roberta Flack didn't know the origin story really either, and uh, yeah, she she is you know now she does, and now she's trying to get it out there as well. Is that right? Yeah, she's very very kind. Um, I went to see her uh, last year before I performed at Carnegie Hall, and um, I went to um, her home, and uh, you know she she was. She didn't know anything about it. She said, had she known, she would have, um, you know, handled things so much differently. Not that she'd mm. handled things badly, but she would have, I think, you know, mentioned me. And, uh, but when I saw her, she took my hands and it was the first time I'd met her. And she just said, okay. oh, she said, Lori Lieberman, it's, she said, so long. It's been so long. And it really mm. just meant um, so much to meet such a brilliant woman. I think Roberta Flack was just completely brilliant. I, really, yeah. I've said this before, but if she hadn't recorded that song, it literally would have been just another folk song. Mm. It, it would have come and gone, but she made it um, something that no one had at that point done. No one had that two feel. No one had mm. that chorus. Uh, she, you know, the, the whole thing was just, you know, huge. Yeah, you and know, she has different. a lot of. Um, I think she has a lot of backing vocals on on her yeah. version as well. Yeah, she does. Um, yours is very. Your voice on that song is very drenched in reverb. It seems. Mm. I believe, was it recorded in a hallway? <laughs> I think it. I think it was. I think actually. I heard I think Charles that's Fox Charles, saying that. Yeah, actually, that was the song that. Uh, that's right. I, I think I was having trouble in the studio. Um, and so, yeah, so he set up a microphone in the hallway. It might've even been in the bathroom of his, of his house. And I, that's true. I, I did do it there. <laughs> it's got a very, your version of your original version of the song from 72 is very haunting, beautiful. It, it's almost like, sounds like a prayer to me. Oh um, God. Nice. Where, and, and there's very little percussion on it. I think you hear like a snare, a hi-hat. Yeah, and but, it was a backbeat too. It was so interesting. Hmm. Never thought that it should be the two feel, but yeah, it's, it's true. What, what's the two feel? I'm afraid I don't know. That I mean, term. you know, like, well, for me, well, Roberta Flax, uh, you know, her thing was, you know, strumming my pain with his fingers, da da da, right? And mine was strumming my pain with his fingers. You know, it was right, you know, it was the backbeat. Right. And hers, of course, is so much cooler. Okay. I mean, I think they're very different moods. I think yeah. they're, I, I mean, I think they're both great. Uh, yours is almost sort of like a chamber 
mm. chamber piece. Um, yeah, but yeah. you know, your your voice just really carries it. It's it's so oh, powerful. Thank you so much. Thank you for saying that. You have a following in the Netherlands. That's pretty strong, right? I do, I do. It's true. <laughs> it's like, yeah, like I want to wear a T-shirt. I'm big in the Netherlands. But, <laughs> I think that's but cool. I'm telling you, I think that you know, in the '70s, I went there and. Um, and they responded to my music back then. And then it just kind of kept on going. And mm. um, it kind of reminded me of my my life in Switzerland. So I have such an, an affinity. And also, I have to say the people, my friends that I've made there are such like my closest friends in, mm. in my life. And the musicianship of the, you know, of, of the people there and, and the artists there is so high. They're mm. so good, um, which is basically why I did my last album with the Dutch string quartet that I brought um, yeah. out to Carnegie hall with me. I mean, they're so incredible. The Matangi quartet. Yeah. Matangi. Matangi. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I was listening to that album, which is called the girl and the cat yes. which came out last year and it, it's beautiful. And you, you perform empty chairs on that album, right? I do. I do. Yes. And um, I'm proud of that album. It's my 19th. And um, wow, I know I just kept doing it. You know, I, I, I felt like, you know, uh, once, once I started to kind of open my mouth, I, I didn't want to stop. And I, and I, the more I said, the more I felt like I wanted to say. So um, I just kept going, you know, mm. and, and it, it uh, this last album, though, um, it was the first time that I had actually arranged for a string quartet. And I learned so much with um, a cellist that is a wonderful dear friend. And together we sat and created these arrangements. And I learned uh, so much over, over that last summer. That's and so um, yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of the album. Of course, it came out just before COVID and yeah. uh, the tours were canceled and rescheduled. And, you know, like everyone, it's a tough time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the 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 songs on that album and 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 previous ones of yours are are very. They seem very very personal. Mm. Um, still very right. poetic. Um, a lot of sort of memories. You know, I realized that I I do have um, uh, things to talk about. Um, it, it comes to me as this sort of a big realization that I guess I can talk about. Uh, growing up in Switzerland, and the only person that I knew to go to Vietnam was my sister's boyfriend, and the mm. only one that I knew in Vietnam who was killed was was him. So wow. I realized I could write a song honoring this guy, and and uh, uh, you know, and that that's unique to me that other people who didn't have my experience, you know, could find something perhaps in it. I, I I'd love to talk about that song actually. It's, okay, it's what song of, is that? So it's called My Sister's Boyfriend, and it's okay. um, off of an album called um, Bend Like Steel. Mm-hmm. And um, it, uh, <clears throat> my sister had a boyfriend named Cliff, and he, while we were in Switzerland, he was from Peoria, Illinois. And at graduation day, he he left and he went back to Peoria and he got drafted. This was in the early, you know, 70s. And about, you know, two months into his um, deployment there, he was killed. 
Hmm. And um, no one, by that time, everyone had graduated from the school I was in in Switzerland and everyone dispersed everywhere. I went to the international school and everyone went all over the world and no one really ever could commemorate his memory. All hmm. these years later, I couldn't find his mother. I couldn't find his sisters and no one had been to a funeral. And this guy was a great guy. Okay. Uh, my sister loved him, but he was also a dear friend of mine. Um, I found two years ago on Facebook, I actually found from link to link to link his sister and I contacted her and she thought it was a, that it was kind of a joke and she, or, or that I was, that I was scamming her somehow and okay. she didn't believe that it was really me, but I sent her the song and she, it opened up for her and her sister um, and their family um, a tremendous um, opportunity because she said that the day that Cliff died, they were no longer permitted to mention his name and he was their baby mm -hmm. brother. And um, because of the song, wow. it brought him back. I was able also to um, to bring other people in, my sister as well. And I performed in New York at the, um, what is the club? Oh, I know you know it. Um, come on. Um, 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 what, um, what neighborhood? What... Oh, it's on the, it's on the, it's on the east side. I, I did also perform it at Carnegie Hall, but they came and the sisters came and 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 cliff sisters and his wow. um nieces and uh, friends from switzerland also came and everyone was able 50 years later to tell the sisters how much cliff had meant to to them and it was a really special thing wow that's really powerful yeah i know to, to, to can't imagine uh not being able to speak <laughs> someone's name who was in your family i know another um album of yours is called home of whispers yeah and you see it seems to be describing the home you grew up in um and some of the lyrics are where were the eyes that wouldn't see where, what were the truths we couldn't speak mm -hmm. um do you yeah. want to talk a little bit about that i you know my my household in in switzerland was um it was full of secrets. My mm. my father was having um, a relationship with his secretary while he was married to my mother. And there was a mm. lot of drama and a lot of times where, you know, I'd wake up uh, to the sound of my mom's um, car uh, going around and around the graveled driveway before she would just leave and we wouldn't find her for days. And oh, wow. um, yeah, it was terrible. And, and my father was unscrupulous he, he really was and it was a very uh very hard you know very hard childhood i have to say mm. yeah it sounds like it yeah um want to switch to a to quickly to a to a happier topic perhaps uh just because i i really loved watching your clips on the mike douglas show oh <laughs> <laughs> you you really killed it you, you and your first time on national tv right was yeah. was the mike douglas show 1973 yeah. you sang killing me softly with this song right. sounds like you're singing it live i was yeah yeah it was it's and true. you got you're sitting next to Tony Curtis when you're on the panel there. What was oh, that like? 
Well, it was great. It was it was fantastic. The the weird thing though is <laughs> I had begun to have some anxiety attacks. <laughs> and like I said, I was great while I was singing, but once I was talking, I had I was really losing my sense of identity. So at the beginning of that of that um, interview, poor Mike Douglas, who was so nice, was asking me questions, and I could I could see. I I, I even can see in the in the in it now when I look at myself, there was almost like the left side of my face was almost paralyzed, and I know <laughs> that I, could, I was having so much anxiety that I almost felt like I couldn't continue another phrase. But finally, he kind of talked me out of it, so I I, I sort of let myself kind of gave myself a break, and then I did enjoy it. <laughs> Well, good. Yeah, well, you'd never know that you were having. Oh, you would when you see it again. Attack. Just look at my face, one side. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I will be. I will be checking. It's <laughs> okay. funny. And then the second appearance, you sing "Time for Me to Go." Yeah. Uh, and you're then you're sitting next to Billie Jean King. I know. And uh, the comedian Jan Murray. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and 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 you do actually talk about your shyness in that. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. And well, she did too, which was so interesting. Yeah. Billie Jean was very, um, I thought, very frank and very exposed. You know, she was mm. so cool. Oh yeah, her. yeah, she was yeah. great. Still is. And also, you know, she was, you know, reviled uh, by a great many people in her oh, day. Yeah, she sure no was. Reason. She was. So did those appearances help your career at all at the time? Oh, yeah. You know, it was, you know, first and second album. And, you know, it was that kind of thing. I think that those were the years that I was basically on the road for almost 360 days a year. Yeah. Just working and, um, you know, touring and performing and, um, you know, yeah, it was a lot of hard work, but I was definitely in it. I I hope folks go ahead and, and, and look for your clips on the Mike Douglas show. It's, it's such <laughs> yeah. a, first of all, it's such a great time capsule to see what else was going on at the time. And, and your performances are, are just great. Oh God. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for saying oh, that. I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that you also sing the great American melting pot. <laughs> from Schoolhouse rock. The great American is- melting pot. <laughs> oh yeah. I couldn't, I, I, did you, there were two sort that? of, sorry. Did you grow up with that song in your school? My that, kids did, but they didn't even realize I, it was me. <laughs> that's amazing. Wow. <laughs> I know. Uh, so they were shown it in school and they told you about it and you're like, you know, that's me, right? <laughs> no, it was happened? actually when they were already older and, okay. and I realized that, that I said, you know, guys, did you ever learn, did you ever hear that song? You know, the great American melting. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> no, we used to hear that. Like, you know, that was, that's your mom. What? <laughs> Uh, that's incredible. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Song. Wow. You, you, you know, you've made your mark in these very, you did know, I, I do remember Eli, seeing did that. I? <laughs> well, I think so. I, well, I, I hope you will continue to make more of a mark. Uh, but uh, please, every, anyone who's listening to this, please look up Lori Lieberman, Lori L-O-R-I. And uh, if you don't already know her music, uh, please, please listen to uh, all of her, you know, albums from the last 25 years or so are available to stream and they're really worth it. And, and, you know, go on, demand that Capitol release CDs of her music and uh, of her early albums. Oh, yes. Because I really love to have those. 
<laughs> Thank you. I would too. Thank you so yeah. much. It was lovely talking to you, Eli. Thank you, you too. so much. Thank you. Thank really you so appreciate much. It. Take good care of yourself, okay? And that's it. Thank you so much for tuning in to my conversation with Lori Lieberman. This has been Strong Reception with Eli James. You can subscribe to it on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your pod stuff. Uh, I've got more great interviews lined up with more people in music and public service, and I can't wait to share them with you. Uh, If you want to check out my blog, please go to votinginthedark.com, where I tackle the latest voting rights issues in the state of New York. And if you want to see me do funny actory, music-y things, please go to eli-james.com. It's all part of my plan to excel at many things that don't pay. Okay, until next time, be well.